Welcome to the Leadership Hacks podcast. My name is Dirk Verburg and I believe that leadership determines the difference between the success and failure of organizations. Today I'm interviewing John Holwich. John Holwich is a university professor of psychology and rhetoric. Before coming to Fordham, he was the A.F. Jacobson Professor of Communications at Creighton University and Dean of Arts and Sciences at Loyola College in Maryland. He also has been the Vice President of Academic Affairs at Fordham. Professor Holwitz's teaching interests include management, experimental quasi-experimental design, statistics, item response theory, structural equation modeling, team building, and especially in high-pressure teams, lifespan career development, religion, and work. His advocations include martial arts, especially classical Tai Chi sword, jazz, and blues music. He's currently working on a book about blues music, and we'll also discuss this during the end of this interview. Well, John, thank you so much for uh, for this interview. Um, the first question I would like to ask you is, um, you probably had foresight because in 1997 you wrote an article about, and I quote, development of a structured ethical integrity interview for pre-employment screening, unquote. And it really seems you were ahead of your time given the wave of corporate scandals that would happen only a few years later, if you think about Enron, WorldCom, and for instance, Tyco. What inspired you to write this article at the time? Well, <coughs> excuse me, Dirk. First of all, again, thank you for the opportunity to uh, visit with you and to speak this afternoon. The, um, the article actually was on that line of research, which produced a couple of interviewing studies, were... Uh, motivated really by events in the United States. In 1988-89, somewhere in there, the United States Congress passed the Employee Polygraph Prevention Act. Ah, okay. Which banned for most routine uses, there are exceptions, the use of polygraphs, uh, which can be highly reliable and valid if they're administered competently and very useful for detecting employees or potential employees who might pose risks to other employees or to your clients and customers or who are otherwise involved in behaviors that will be counterproductive and maybe devastating. So uh, in a line of research, a couple of colleagues and I established that you can use structured interviews, interviews in which everybody gets asked the same question in the same format and everybody gets scored question by question with the same scale administer the same interview across a group of people, applicants, score them, and you give a piece of data that you can rank order for hiring. And we were interested in whether or not uh, we'd be able to get an ethical demeanor doing yeah. that. So we because we've done interviews that get at things like theft, for example, or safety violation or alcohol and drug use on the job, things like that. But how about ethical impropriety? Yeah. So if I think if we were ahead of the curve on anything, it was actually potentially something that never occurred to us to look at at that point, which was 25, 30 years ago, which was the possibility that the prevalence of psychopaths, antisocial personalities in management might be far greater than anybody realized at the time. 
And although this is a notoriously difficult area in which to get data, there are some data that suggest that that might be the case. One of the most effective things that we may be doing in management development out there is grooming and promoting people functionally who don't have consciences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's the direction which I would go were I redoing that study now. It would be to, to zero in on the psychopathy potentially that's at work behind these people. And I don't know. Imagine in principle an interview could get at that, but I think there are potentially other ways uh, that might uh, that might do it. So yeah, I, th- I, th- I think that's a that's a very actual topic because I think uh, Manfred Katzvries has uh, has written some publications who basically hint at you know narcissism and other let's say character traits that uh, sometimes uh, senior leaders display, and uh, and I think what you say is very very valuable. That certainly yeah. does seem to be the case in in my field. We talk about the dark triad, a complex yeah, exactly. yeah. negative emotions. Yeah, uh, affects and behaviors that are very costly and dangerous. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because that uh, that also played um, played a big role in the in the research that was taking place in the context of of Cambridge Analytica. That was just deliberately looking for, let's say, the dark triads and exploring that. Um, so that that's a that's a very very interesting um, area and and unfortunately highly uh, highly actual. The the other question I have is that um, you you also you have done quite a lot of work in in ethics, um, and there are some people that argue that in a capitalistic system, the only obligation for public companies is to optimize the value for their shareholders, and they therefore only need to stick to the letter of the law of the jurisdiction they operate in. How do you see the relationship between ethics, which is you know asking what is morally right or wrong? And the way that public companies should behave and operate in a capitalistic system. Uh, well, first, by way of background, I was trained by Jesuits in secondary school and in college. So I have eight years of Jesuit education, which is centered on ethical propriety and which takes very seriously the ethical implications of the disciplines and their practice, uh, both scholarly and, and in the real world. So ethics has never been terribly far from the way that I frame things. But the question that you ask is a compelling one because it's tapping into a 50-year controversy now. In 1971, the economist Milton Friedman published a piece in the New York Times Sunday magazine called something like the only social responsibility of businesses yeah. to make money. Yeah, a really notorious article. Yeah, correct. And it's been debated. It was up up until yeah. the end of his life. He was defending it a few years ago. Uh, and there are some real difficulties with that position. One of them is empirical. We're finding that Customers and clients like companies who are engaged in CSR, corporate social responsibility, and employees like working for companies that do it. Now, Friedman makes a very strong article argument in the article that uh, shareholder maximization is the only goal, but he provides an important loophole uh, that I think actually is bigger than he may have realized. That loophole concerns, for example, I think that the example that he uses is uh, a business operating internationally and uh, with production facilities in Africa, in Central Africa, let's say. 
suppose that you are that company operating in an area of the world that does not have good infrastructure for education, and you donate money to begin providing that kind of infrastructure. If that donation has value to you, if, for example, you can anticipate 15 years down the line having a higher quality of employee, then it's justifiable in Friedman's terms. Yeah. Apart from that, the situation that Friedman, because we can demonstrate that an awful lot of these things do have positive utility, uh, the argument that Friedman make, makes depends largely on whether or not you can make a donation surreptitiously without acknowledgement and thereby get no reputational benefit, which CSR brings to companies. But publicly traded companies, at least in North America, cannot do that because they've got to account for where the money is going. So anytime they make something that looks like a charitable investment, it's going to appear in a report that's going to get picked up and discussed. And one of the things that we're finding is that, again, customers, clients, and employees like these things. And they respond with economic behavior. The employees, by becoming more engaged and productive, less inclined to leave, more committed to the community. And customers or clients feeling like they're supporting an organization that is at least doing some good in the world. So I think that I think that companies can no longer afford the Friedman shareholder maximization principle, no. which they, for the reasons I described, but I think is false. Now it's it's interesting what you say because actually um, you could you could take let's say your argument to a way that you could say well in order to to maximize shareholder value for the reasons you describe in the sense of, you know, loyalty from your employees and let's say goodwill as the general public, you could say that doing CSR is actually, um, you know, could be a driver for your shareholder value, if you understand what I mean. So that's, that's a very interesting concept. Almost every organization nowadays has a code of conduct or one or more other documents that describe their ethical principles. How, in your views, could companies ensure that these values come to life in the way that these organizations operate? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, and it's it's not unique to the code of conduct and ethical norms or ethical propriety. Um, in general, I think the management advice is that if you want a culture to change in a particular direction, you need to find a way to reinforce or reward the change. Now, we automatically think of salary and benefits and things like that. There are other ways to reward. Uh, the Gallup Foundation, for example, a very large polling organization in the United States and multinationally, has an enormous research initiative and has found and reported on a number of very simple ways to reward or reinforce. But people have to know what's expected and have to be rewarded for following it. On top of that, it really helps to put somebody in charge of and accountable for these kinds of behaviors. Um, we'll be a good example. General Electric, for example, a General Electric Corporation. I'm not sure whether they still do this, but the last time I looked in the context of this conversation, 
I think their top 4,000 executives are measured in their annual performance reviews on which merit pay and bonuses may depend are analyzed for the degree to which they have implemented the ethics policy and the ethics code. So having responsibility and accountability and reward vested in somebody or somebodies with names and faces and phone numbers and email addresses can certainly enhance compliance and help bring these things to life. Yeah, it, it, it definitely highlights accountability and the expectations. So, uh, yeah, I would uh, I would really agree uh, on that one. If you look at your, your role as an academic, um, if and how do you implement ethics in your curriculum to ensure that your students take a sense of ethics with them once they you know, leave the university and enter the world of work? Well, I referred earlier to, to the fact that I've got eight years of secondary and then post-secondary Jesuit education, and I'm at a Jesuit university now. So it is almost unthinkable that we would approach any discipline from philosophy to bench sciences without considering seriously in the conversation the obligations towards the common good that people in that discipline or in that profession have. So we cannot teach, or we can teach, but it may or may not take what is, quote, the right thing to do in every circumstance. An incredibly difficult thing to do and probably pretentious and futile to attempt it. But we can push towards a habit of examination and reflection. Now, in the Jesuit path, in the, in, in the clerical path of, of the religious order, the Jesuits pay careful attention to what they call the examine, a process of regular reflection on how I'm doing in my life, where I could have done today something's different, where I will do them differently tomorrow. But that goes for disciplines as well. If the knowledge coming in is couched in the context of what are the implications of what we are learning and doing with this for the common good, for the welfare of all of us, then much of these ethical norms are going to present themselves because it's very difficult to engage that question without getting to moral norms. And if we can build that habit into students as well as the habit of intellectual analysis, Again, whether it be a computer spreadsheet or a work of poetry, we're doing it. We're getting very, very close to it. That's what we strive to do, and that's what we assess ourselves on doing in part uh, as an educational institution. And it's something we are very proud of within the Jesuit educational system. Yeah, I can imagine. And I, th I think what I found interesting, what you said, is that um... – you ask, let's say, people to self-reflect on those questions. And I was thinking it's so interesting because nowadays one of the more popular phenomena is uh, journaling and people are encouraged to uh, to journal in the sense of, you know, what they experience throughout the day. And then usually there are a number of standard questions that people can use. But I think the themes you highlighted could definitely be in there in the sense of, you know, how did you make a difference for others? Um, you know, and it also reminds me, almost a little bit about um, 
the motto, one of the mottos of the American Boy Scouts is always leave a camping place in a better shape than you basically found it. So these are really, let's say, provoking questions, I think, uh, for people to reflect on, um, you know, as a leader, um, either, you know, through journaling or through other possibilities to self-reflect. Um, I think that would be a very practical way to to bring in that uh, that ethical dimension. It's not without some controversy, though, because in in social contexts or subgroups that may be much more relativistically oriented, the question of whether there is a common good can mm-hmm. be an issue. So whether we can define any such thing apart from the relatively individual concerns of me yeah. or us, uh, the equivalent on an individual level of profit shareholder profit maximization on a collective level, that conversation is out there. And by no means does everybody agree that there is a common good to which we should devote ourselves. Nay, nay I agree. I think... Um... I think the way to to let's say to that it could be translated pragmatically for a number of people in a sense of you know did I make a difference today for people in my environment or for for my customers or basically for my employees or for for other stakeholders I think that is let's say I think a powerful reflection uh, basis because I think as you said um, there are volumes written about ethics and there are a number of let's say difficult uh, different principles that could be used to, let's say, define ethics. And I think for the last uh, more than 2,000 years, we have been unable to align on those. So I'm not sure if we can do that somewhere in the in the next 2,000 years. Uh, but we can at least, let's say, uh, pose ourselves with, with practical questions in that regard that could, uh, could really drive and, uh, and make a difference. Yes. I think some of the ground may be changing in that. I don't know how big a presence this book is in Europe, or the rest of the world. But in North America, it's been a big hit for 20 years, booked by a strategy consultant named Jim Collins called Good to Great. Yeah, I, I got it, plus a couple of other books uh, of him as well. Now, it's been a big um, a big hit also in uh, in Europe. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's essentially, I think, an extension of what we have from antiquity, both in Asia and in Western Europe, of virtue ethics. Yeah. As a normative ideal. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's been a lively and flourishing part of our ethical thinking for several millennia. And uh, it's, it's being approached in some very concrete, pragmatic terms by people like Collins and others who are looking for a new vision of what leadership and management really are. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is, uh, I think there are a couple of, let's say, very powerful uh, inroads made in uh, in thinking about this uh, this topic. The the question is: Do you also see a relationship between ethics and uh, and the sense of purpose? And and if so, what what could that relationship look like? Excuse me. Very broad question. the The short answer is yes, but I think I need to digress on the sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, issue a bit more. The we th- one of the things that we're seeing, at least in applied management, uh, as as we teach it and research it and train people to practice it, 
One of the things we're seeing is that one of the strongest job motivators that you can have or that an employee can have is a sense of purpose and meaning from the workplace. And that can mean a variety of things. That can mean a feeling of contributing to something bigger than what I am, essentially, something that has to do with the recognition of transcendence. It can mean personal actions and reflections on, on personal action. But above all, it connects people to doing something that's meaningful beyond themselves. The degree to which we are open to that kind of transcendent experience as employees or as bosses in bringing it to employees can have enormous implications. Uh, and there are a number of companies in the West who are experimenting with doing exactly this. A great deal of the best practices research are strongly in support of this connection and of enhancing it in various ways. It's one of the drivers, I think, behind the mindfulness movement in the West, which is making significant incursions, sometimes in very good forms and sometimes in somewhat amateurish forms, into business and, and labor practice because the contemplative life does tend to at least embrace the search for connection for purpose and for meaning. So the, to the degree that we can create environments at work in which employees feel connected to one another and to us and to their clients and customers and to the products of their labor, figured so prominently for Marx, for example, and his critique, yeah. to the degree which, which we can do that, we benefit workplaces, people, and probably shareholders as well. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think it is connected. And I think the, the interesting thing is nowadays, I think, um, and it might also have to do a little bit with, let's say, different generations, because I think when I entered the workforce about, um, you know, 30 plus years ago, there was, you know, we, we never asked the questions about, let's say, sense of purpose. I think there were some companies that some of us avoided, like, you know, tobacco uh, companies or the weapon industry, etc., um, but it was more, let's say, exclusion of, of certain branches or certain companies rather than, let's say, deliberate choice. But I think right now um, um, it, it's it's a motivator. People basically want to, a number of people at least, want to associate with, let's say, the, the purpose of their, their company. They want to, to feel that also in their daily work, of course, there is you know, providing for themselves, their family, you know, satisfying their material needs. But there's also, let's say, the idea of, contributing something bigger to society as a whole. So in that sense, I think it is also one of the themes that we discussed earlier. It's at a certain moment also, you know, almost for the importance of the shareholder that you as a company, besides, let's say, serving their immediate financial interest, also have a broader sense of purpose because it will help you, as we said, with, you know, attracting and let's say retaining employees and it's also you know potentially very beneficial um for you know customer uh, customer loyalty um if you think about let's say the consequences of of, of let's say companies that lack let's say a sense of uh, of purpose um what what would be some of the the consequences uh, for them be there could be many of them uh, you know, maybe, maybe, perhaps the most immediate of them may be employee withdrawal behaviors, mm -hmm. uh, by which I mean certainly turnover, 
you know, leaving an organization, but also with uh, turnover cognitions. That is, people who are intending to leave your company aren't producing at the same level as people who are enthusiastic about being there. Uh, and and that can have a substantial impact on productivity and on the bottom line. So there are costs. Uh, uh, people leave jobs that don't connect them to a sense of meaning. For the past couple of years, I've been tracking uh, a number of surveys of the state of women in management ranks in the Western workforce. And women are significantly underrepresented. The more that becomes truer, the higher up. Yeah, the, the higher in the, the hierarchy, let's say the, the representation significantly drops. Yeah, yeah. When uh, and a number of studies have shown that when, when women who have voluntarily left these situations uh, it turned over, and women are the biggest source of entrepreneurs in the American economy right now. Oh, really? What, what, I, I, never, I, I didn't know that. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. The, the, um, the, the dominant reason given in several studies that, that women have given for leaving has to do with connecting to a sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. The report is that at that place, they wouldn't let me do what I knew that I could do to help make the place successful. What they're saying is I'm being underused. I could make more money for you, which is a very different statement from I'm quitting because I hate it here. It suggests that these people are driven by a sense of purpose, uh, driven enough to take the substantial risk of going out on their own, which many of them do as entrepreneurs. Uh, uh, ventures which have a fairly high failure rate and which are taxing in more ways than one. Yeah. Again, it comes down to whether or not the workplace that I'm in provides me with a sense of meaning that's transcendent to simply what shareholder values or quarterly stock prices or earnings reports may be. That, that's that's very interesting. Do, do you also think there is a connection um, between, let's say, what, what Jung called individuation and let's say working in an organization with a sense of purpose would, would those things be connected in some way you think i think they have to be and we spend so much of our time at work so mm -hmm. a large percentage of our life at work yeah that the individuation process is not simply going to stop now jung was very suspicious of organizations yeah definitely the larger they were the the more negative he was about them yeah yeah Yes, because they can be dehumanizing, they can be strongly impersonal, and it takes a lot of intentionality on the part of management to be able yeah. to counter that. But but to the degree to which individuation involves a commitment to something like moving towards wholeness or completion, that's profoundly meaningful. And that's something that theoretically, that many people are pursuing when they pursue careers, either in their initial choices or in job changes or in whole career changes over the lifespan. It's whether or not what I'm doing is contributing to my, we may phrase it as development, we may phrase it as individuation process, but it's certainly a major contributor to that. And getting it right is critical, both for physical and psychological and we're thinking spiritual well-being yeah yeah because if i built on the last uh the last theme that you mentioned in our pre-discussion you said that 
companies that don't provide a sense of purpose or don't act, let's say, as a platform um, for the individuation process of individuals, that it can have extremely negative implications for the individuals themselves. Um, you know, I think you mentioned things like illness, um, you know, and potentially even worse than that. What, what are, let's say, the consequences? What do you think the root causes are and what, what could the consequences be um, for individuals? Well, uh, the, the, the potential outcomes are very serious. Mm-hmm. Two or three years ago, an organizational development scholar, one of the most distinguished in the field, named Pfeffer, ah, Jeffrey yeah. Pfeffer yeah. from Stanford, published a book called Dying for a Paycheck, which is an exhaustive and detailed medical literature review of the, the extent to which what we're doing in management is killing people. And he's not speaking metaphorically. He's talking about the impact of job-related stress compounded over decades mm-hmm. on personal life expectancy and mortality. An awful lot of this seems to be mediated by high stress produced by situations in which we don't fit or don't feel that we can move or to which we don't feel that we can connect. And yet, Many of us do it because of the dependence on the paycheck, which is not an inconsiderable. Cons- no, fact. no, so certainly not if your responsibilities. Um, you know, if you if you have to think like things like family, uh, sending your children potentially to college, uh, taking care of relatives. Um, yeah. So it's just Pfeffer's work. I think shifted uh, very, very clearly an awful lot of the discussion in the direction of ethics because companies should which is a moral or ethical statement not be inducing fatal illness in their employees it doesn't make sense financially or economically it doesn't make sense in business terms Uh, i doubt that many people are doing it intentionally some organizations are alleged not to care particularly but i've got to believe those are the rare exceptions Uh, but addressing the managerial causes of profound compounding stress, which can affect the hormone system, the cardiovascular system, all of them, the circulatory system, and the cognitive system, the central nervous system, in ways that we don't want to see happen. No. No, I think that's a, that's that is very sobering um, data, John, that you uh, that you share, and I think that's that's definitely a strong case to uh, to as a company act on that. Do you also have any ideas how companies can create a sense of purpose for their employees? The I think the example that we're seeing from a number of companies suggest that there are a number of paths to do this. Um, First and foremost, connecting them to each other. So companies which have authentic team approaches, by, by which I mean employees being used to functioning in a small group with a certain degree of self management responsibilities. And if they're rewarded appropriately and given clear directives for how they're going to act, will cohere. They will form a unit. And if the interactions in that unit and its activities in pursuit of company goals are positive, that can be a pretty powerful source of connecting to meaning and a pretty good buffer 
against the kinds of institutional stress, which we know now can cause physiological as well as emotional and spiritual damage. So connecting people to themselves, to each other, building a sense of community, even if that's just one small team at a time, acknowledging accomplishments and publicly acknowledging is awfully critical and is a form of reward that doesn't necessarily involve increasing somebody's salary or giving people annual bonuses. It's all about connection. It's all about community. And it's all about, again, the notion that there's a superordinate goal that we need to be mindful of in collective operations in order to be able to hold on to our souls in its pursuit. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's one of the things that you say, and I think that that is something that is... It's also growing in terms of importance, also the quality of relationships between individuals. And, um, you know, the, the better the, the quality of the relationships with people, you know, working together also, you know, that, that's, that's also, let's say, that's kind of almost an enforcing mechanism for engagement, for motivation, for supporting each other, for, you know, the team, for camaraderie. For bringing the unit together, it's it's just incredibly important, and um, and I I also recognize completely what you say about recognizing uh, achievements. And to your point, it it it's almost in a way that it doesn't need to be uh, material, but it's let's say the public nature of it, and you know, giving people the full credit for what they've done. That's just incredibly important. And these are very simple things that could make a real difference in the daily life of um, of organizations. John, I, I also had, let's say, to, uh, to uh, let's say, a personal question to ask because um, completely switching uh, topics away from, uh, from your professional field, you're also a big fan of, of blues music. Uh, you're ending, for instance, all your emails with a quote from uh, Willie Dixon, the blues is the roots, everything else is the fruit. I also understand you're currently developing a book-length manuscript called Hearing the Blues. Could you perhaps tell us what this manuscript is about and, and what is your drive for, uh, for writing it? Uh, I am an avid blues fan, traditional American blues, which... Uh, is was an extraordinary development uh, in American culture with very powerful influences on the world. Uh, I would argue that everything that we are listening to, that we're consuming as music, that is not part of the Euro Western European American classical catalog, mm -hmm. but everything since roughly 1920 or 1930, uh, it, reflects the blues, beginning with jazz, but also moving into all of the other domains, rhythm and blues, um, rock and roll, hip hop, orchestral compositions, all are inflected with the unique rhythms, harmonies, and syncopations of blues music. Uh, in addition, it's uh, so the, the recognition of the blues is a recognition of where our music today comes from. 
in addition, this is the music of enslaved people. Yeah. So what we are hearing in the blues and the origins of the blues is a series of cries of desperation, lament, sometimes joy and celebration that come out of hundreds of years of the most extraordinary horror that didn't entirely end when the United States ended slavery in the 1860s, which continued yeah. in the form of Jim Crow laws. Yeah. So I'm very interested in how the blues captures that, that expression, and how that has influenced how we see and hear the music that we've got now. It comes from the African-American, Western African in particular, through the Caribbean, influences of people who were brought here against their will, compelled to work, and who brought their musical traditions with them, combined them together, and produced a mix of popular music that has taken the world and captured the world's imagination. So the book that I'm doing is actually an oral history. So I'm interested in, and I'm talking to a variety of people from professional blues musicians from around the world, blues fans, regular rock and roll fans, uh, classical music aficionados, historians, non-musicians, uh, amateurs, a whole range of them, to try to understand what it is about the blues that caught their attention. And what is it that guides how they hear them and how they understand that the blues mean in terms of our own context and our own music today? Because it's a sociological story. It's a story of generations of people moving out of slavery and into conditions sometimes barely better. So it's got enormous impact. And it means that the music and the so many of the arts that are fundamental to Western thinking, certainly in North America, stem directly not from the European tradition, but from the African and Western Caribbean tradition. That's where our music comes from, from the blues, from jazz, and filters everywhere from show, town, show tunes and standards to hip hop and entire percussion. So I'm very interested in the, in the experiences that people have, and they're quite some of them are quite moving to listen to. People have often very vivid memories of the first time as a teenager, for example, or sometimes earlier, sometimes later, were aware that there was this different form of music out there that they were encountering for the first time and that opened their eyes and ears. That opening is what I'm trying to document from as many different perspectives as possible. Super, and and also uh, understand, uh, John, that if people are uh, you know interested to to talk about these experiences and and share them either as uh, musicians or as uh, as listeners, that they could uh, contact you. Is that is that correct? That's absolutely the case, and the best place to do that is at my university email address, and it's my last name Holwitz H O L L W I T Z at Fordham, F-O-R-D-H-A-M, dot E-D-U. And anybody that might like to talk about or write about or share her or his or their experiences with the blues, I would love to hear from you. Uh, and if possible, to speak or even to exchange written messages. 
because the surveys aren't getting at personal material, the only thing that we're interested in or that I'm interested in is what people understand by and appreciate about this form of music in their own lives and as they see the arts around them in the world. So I'd love to hear from folks. Super. And I'll make uh, sure, John, that I put your uh, email address in the in the show notes below so that people can uh, can look it up. Well, thank John, you. I, That'd be great. Yeah, and they're very happy to do that. John, I just want to thank you so much for this interview. The question is, we touched on a number of uh, of aspects about, um, you know, especially in the world of uh, of business ethics, a sense of purpose. Um is there anything that we haven't mentioned in that context which you would like to uh, to mention or to um, to articulate? Just, I'm not sure I can articulate it in real precise terms, but as we proceed in exploring these questions, I think that we're running into a series of issues for which business and, quote, business science, what we teach in the business schools, which it can't easily accommodate. And that's the possibility that Jung was right, fundamentally, that there is such a thing as a soul, that the soul is there, called or uncalled, to quote the placard outside his personal retreat in Zurich. Yeah. Spirit is going to be there. It's going to inform who we are and how we express and connect to that soul. And we have not yet really done the job in the workplace. But we're asking questions along those lines now. Some organizations are Google, for example, Amazon, a number of others are taking significant steps in trying to explore answers. And I think it suggests that the next wave of thinking and practice about how we do business, how we generate shareholder value, and how we profit the economy and people as a whole. I think those questions, their answers are going to depend very heavily on how we grapple with the question of transcendent meaning and its I, I, achievement. Yeah, I would, I would fully agree with you. I think... Um... That might be the the next frontier in uh, in business science, so to speak. Yes. Super. Well, thank you yeah. so much for this uh, for this interview, John. Thank you. My pleasure, Dirk. I've enjoyed it enormously. Super. Well, thank you so much, and uh, looking forward to speaking to you again soon. That would be great. Be well, Dirk. Thank you. <laughs>